that thing we have inside us uh, that determines the meter of which patience is going to extend is the belief in ourself. The more mercury, murky uh, our future is, and the more murky the road is to obtain a goal, the more impatient we are to get somewhere because we don't control that destiny. So remember something. A lot of times when you're running around trying to find answers, when you have challenges and you, and you need something done tomorrow and you don't know where to turn, go to the mirror. Oh. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how So I had studied abroad in China in the fall of 2014 in um, Hangzhou for a semester. And then I also was there after I graduated high school for a month in Shanghai at Huashida, East China Normal University. And then before then, I was there for like two weeks um, between Beijing and Xi'an. So I've been like, yeah, studying wise, I always like planted to, is it a cumulative, about a year, a little under or so in the in the study portion. And then I've been back and forth for like work here and there, and then also lived over there and worked for a, a longer period of time too. How was the living situation? And obviously you're fluent, right? I would assume yeah, in order yeah. to live out there, you'd, you'd make sure you are fluent or is it, is that a necessity? I don't know. You don't, you don't necessarily have to be, it, it helps. It, it certainly helps out in a lot of ways. Like especially um, literacy and the ability to like read signs and like, I have no problem navigating websites and like, you know, getting whatever resources I need um, and asking people the right questions to get, you know, what I need to get around town. But there's plenty of expats that live in China that don't really speak Chinese or speak very poor Chinese or Mandarin. I should, I should really classify as, and then yeah, living there was, it was pretty fun. Um, (laughs) So I, lived my longest period of time in Beijing. Um, and that was like when I actually had my own apartment, I had a pretty decent apartment near like the fourth ring and Chaoyang Lu over kind of in, in Chaoyang Chu, um, which is a nice area. It's like kind of the central business district of Beijing, um, where like a lot of businesses are living. There was great. There were other expats in my complex, but like, I don't know, like I spent a lot of my time hanging out with Chinese friends. Um, I made some from the first job I had, um, and like, had just gone out with them a few times and like, they showed me all the local restaurants, which was awesome. And, you know, it was great to like learn from them and connect with them on a personal level. 
Um, and like, there's a ton of stuff. I just, I guess I, I did in China that, that was a, you know, a lot of fun and, and really good cultural knowledge too. They were probably really happy when you came back out there. Cause everyone, like people I've studied abroad too. And it was like, I told my friends, Oh, I'm going to go back out there. I did not go back out there. So I know they're still waiting <laughs> on that, but you've definitely made that same promise in order, yeah. in order to go back. Like that definitely gave you some brownie points. I circled back with a lot of them. Yeah. So like I had some very good good friends um that were like our roommates and you know we met up when i when i would go to shanghai or in a couple cases i went to hangzhou and stayed with one of our roommates as well um and like we we like stayed up late playing league of legends like old times and like you know just just hang out and like chat it was it was a ton of fun even though we had already like moved on from college you know (laughs) that's dope where so i'm curious like I mean, we, we kind of hopped right into, I guess, the middle of your experience um, with Chinese or slash with China, because obviously you already fluent and like already had interest to want to go out there. So what was that sort of like introduction first? Because obviously, you know, China seems to have a really big influence in your past experience as well, as well as what you're doing right now. So like, what was sort of that yeah. introduction to, you know, like, how did China get such a big influence in your life? So it's funny, I actually, I'd, I'd never had an intention on like, making it a, a cornerstone of what would I hang my coat on for a career or or any of my interests. I really liked languages growing up. I was fortunate enough to start learning French in kindergarten. Um, and I took that all the way up in, until like senior year of high school, freshman year of high school, they offered Chinese for credit. And I just like, you know, I thought, man, it'd be pretty cool to learn Chinese. Like it, it seems like a, a hard language. I'm all right at French and like, I would love to try it. So I took it my first, my freshman year. I was terrible. I was so bad at like just understanding the writing and like tones and like the thing that really did click though is I really liked a lot of the cultural elements like really love the food big fan of music I love like the history as well um and like you know as you dig deeper in you start to just find other avenues of like you know China or like this Chinese ecosystem that you really have an enjoyment for so like you know, in college, digging deeper into some of the philosophy um, and doing that in the comparative sense against like Western philosophy as well. And that was super cool. But yeah, it was like just how I got involved in that. You know, I had, I was fortunate that junior summer um, at the time I was doing some like recruiting camps. I, I, I had played lacrosse throughout high school and like wanted to be recruited in college. Um, and, 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 and yeah, ended up did getting recruited, but like my junior, junior summer, I was doing some camps, but I had an opportunity to, to go to, to go to China. And initially the trip was six weeks, but I only went for two weeks of it. But after coming back from that, like I felt a lot more connected in terms of like how I want to practically use my Chinese and, you know, got a taste of what it's like to interact in a different language in a different environment which I think was really like the catalyst to it. So I applied to the same grant. This is all through the Department of State. It's called um, the National Security Language Initiative for Youth. It's a program that they do for high school students to send them you know, fully paid to critical language areas. So that could be like sending them to, I believe it's Morocco now. Um, they have one in South Korea. They've got one... They've any got high school everywhere. student can apply? Can any high school student apply for it? Yeah, any high school student can apply for it. Um, U.S. high school student, so it's for American citizens, and yeah, it's fully paid for six weeks. I ended up getting it through like the University of Delaware on a contingent, and went to East China Normal University after I graduated senior year. Um, studied there for a month for six weeks, and we did some like travel between Shanghai and Beijing, 
um, and like did a little bit of back and forth, mainly in, in Shanghai for the most part. Um, throughout all of these these trips, maybe barring the first one I went on, um, mm-hmm. which was my junior summer, throughout like any of these trips that I'm going to China, like I spent a lot of my time maybe not being the best student. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I got, I, I took my classes, I got straight A's and like, I, you know, I did everything I needed to do there, but I had a very strong belief that, and I still hold it to this day that learning Chinese is not just about learning the language. It's 75% culture and 25% language. So you can never master like spoken Mandarin, written Mandarin without understanding local culture and how that language is used and varies across the country. So I spent a lot of my time just like going out. And, and I don't mean like going out drinkingly, partying the whole time. But I mean, like, I don't know, I had, um, I had a TA uh, on the you know, trip in Shanghai. And we would go and eat barbecue at the back gate every day. And like drink, drink a couple beers, but like just eat barbecue and like chat and like understand his experiences in the US. And the funny thing is this guy had just graduated college. Um, and here I was like going into college and we're still very good friends to this day. We lived together for a period of time in Beijing when I went back. Um, he's a great dude, but you know, we just chopped it up like the whole time and got to know each other, got to know each other's like backgrounds and connect on a very personal level. And I, and I find that those types of connections are really what like fuel a lot of like my knowledge or understanding of what's going on. See, that's dope. Like, and I understand that you said that you, even though you did well in school, so on and so forth, you felt like a lot of the learning was happening outside the classroom. So you did socialize a lot. I'm pretty sure it was even dope learning just different drinking etiquettes, right? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Like there's certain little things with like how you cheer somebody. So like in China, when you cheer somebody with a glass, depending on the context of the situation, you want to cheers lower. Like you want your glass lower than them. Um, because it shows that you honor them, but also you don't want to like play too far into it. Um, unless like, you know, there's just like this whole kind of subculture, like kind of game that I don't want to call it a game, but like, you know, kind of, kind of a fun, like interplay that you need to, to go by, you know, you want to dip and, you know, have them dip or, you know, whatever it might be. But, and then there's so many good drinking games too, like some different dice games where you roll like six dice underneath a cup and you're going back and forth with somebody else and you say like, three threes and then you have to say like you know three fours or four fives and you keep mm, going up seen, and then you call it on somebody i think i've seen these yeah. in movies <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that's dope though yeah i mean i, I think um well like what's interesting is because like i mean you mentioned a little bit about a immersing your culture while you were out there but also you know you didn't, even as you were when you were studying it as a language before you went out there you know being drawn to things like the the philosophies and stuff and how they differ from western philosophy and i'm thinking about how you know in america a lot of times china is kind of like used or is kind of framed in the in a very big other sense where it's almost like considered yep. like on the other side of the world you know dig a hole through mm-hmm. the ground and you'll end up in china right like <laughs> totally. so um being with that at least that perception of there being such a difference between the two, you know, when, as once you came back from your experiences out there and once you immerse yourself more in that culture, um, were there any elements of it that, you know, you brought with you to, you know, being in America that are sort of, or were there any like particular things that sort of stood out to you as like, ah, oh, I wish America was like more like, you know, when I was back out there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint. I think a lot of times, especially in U.S. education and like Western centric education, there is a lot of otherism that goes on with China and viewing China as an other. And like when it comes back to it, and I think this is what resonates with like when I when I would just hang out with people like people are humans 
Um, Mm -hmm. and there's still a lot of the same interest mechanisms. Like people like to drink, people like to have sex, people like to listen to music, people like to tune out of politics because they don't want to like deal with it all the time. I think like one of those (coughs) bigger differences is that like, I didn't have a lot of political discussions and it's not for like fear of my life against like, you know, any politician in play or like against the Chinese government. It's just like, that wasn't a topic of conversation that really drove a lot of things forward. Um, but like coming back to the States, I find like there was a lot of conversation that was centered around politics, which is fine. It's just like a different, you know, central tying element. And I think, you know, in the U S we're very focused on our individualism and like China has very unique individuals too. And like individualism is very important too, but there is a communal aspect of like, you know, you, you, you see it with like how COVID-19 has played out in some regard, like early January 29, uh, when it was first announced in China, like there were some more strict quarantining procedures that went on. Um, whereas the U S like you have people going to spring break in Miami and like not caring, not caring about being in a congregated area or putting other people at risk. But like in China, there's that element of, well, even if I'm not going to get sick, I don't want to get somebody else sick. And, you know, also people are pretty afraid of diseases, hypochondriacs. So, um, Mm. there is a lot of that that kind of goes on. So being that there is that, I guess, sense of othering, what are some of the ways that you've been trying to, to bridge the gaps, I guess, and to alleviate some of the misunderstanding that there might be, or some of the othering that there might be in the States? So it's a great lead into the company I currently work for. Uh, <laughs> I, work at a, I work at a company called SupChina.com. Um, we're a news media organization geared towards providing an understanding of China for a Western audience. So we'll do that through a number of ways, but we have, you know, different uh, mediums of publication, be it podcast or be it our website, newsletter, anything of the like. Um, And what we really try to boil down is, you know, a global view of what's going on in China, what Chinese state media is saying and what Western media is saying to kind of give you the, the full perspective and allow you to tread the middle ground. And like outside of political issues, that goes from everything on reporting uh, and like the language that is used to reporting different cultural epithets of like, you know, we don't, it's, it's hard to, let me see if we can place it into context here. I almost like hesitate to use some language of like, you know, when presenting what Douyin is, um, which is the TikTok of, it's the TikTok of China. It's the same company. Douyin and TikTok are the same product, but like they're segmented for different markets. Um, mm-hmm. I guess like, what did I, I don't know. I guess I kind of dug myself into a hole here. Well, it's, it's segmented for different <laughs> markets in what sense? Well, so like TikTok is totally localized for the US market and they don't show up with any of the Chinese content on it, really. Um, like Chinese creators just do not publish on it. And they've done so for like most of their local markets. Like all of the videos that you're going to look at are incredibly localized. Um, and I've like read reports that they're censoring or like looking into what types of creators are allowed to publish things. But like in China, Douyin is very popular and yeah, there's definitely censorship on it, but like the content that comes out of there is different, but I guess like reverting back to the idea of like how, how to combat otherism or, you know, to bridge the divide. I think it just comes from like personal relations and like working one-on-one with people the programs that I did, like the Nisley program was totally geared towards that interpersonal connection. Um, and a lot of organizations that I partner with within my current job, I had a business development. So I'm working with different partners globally. 
a lot of them all have a, uh, a central mission towards increasing mutual understanding between both sides. And what it comes down to is like, yeah, uh, just having a, a lunch or like having a conversation about, you know, something in particular and hearing different sides and then just fostering more communication between the two. I, I don't find that much is different. Yeah. Like when I was in China, I used WeChat and WeChat was the hub for everything, but that's just a technological event. Like that's just a, a tool. Um, it's just a, a tool with technology. You know, it's like, that's like drawing the comparison of saying, well, in America we use pencils and in China they use pens. You know, how weird is that? Mm. And it's really not like they're <laughs> both writing gotcha. devices. Well, I mean, I think the, the, I mean, what you're saying about what you said earlier about like, you know, at the end of the day, everyone is human. Then also just this idea of like, building personal relationships being the way to really combat misunderstandings and ignorance it's like yeah that's like not even true you know on a global scale that's even true just within america itself like a lot of times totally um it's literally just people are in their own bubbles and like you only get a perception fed to you of of who another group of people are and then you don't ever actually like interact with them directly then you're just going to feed off of whatever information is being fed to you so now, it makes sense yep. that that's really the solution, both on a global scale as well as just kind of on a on a smaller scale as well. And speaking of well, personal relationships, think of it. Think think the think the rhetoric. Just while while you're on that, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. Oh, but like, thinking of of that type of you know relationship or understanding, like look at how early on with like COVID nineteen, it was characterized as the China virus and like the Wuhan virus, and there was a lot of this geographic distinction of a disease and trying to make it oriented out of. China. And like, then there was, you know, emphasis on, on the blame of like eating bats or eating snakes or eating like what some would say, quote unquote, weird food. Like it's mm-hmm. a, you know, cultural significance. Like not everybody's going around just eating bat all the time. Like once in a while here, once in a blue moon, I've never had it. I don't like, as far as I know, it's not really a very common thing that people would go and eat, but I wouldn't write it off. And I don't understand, like, that's not a terrible thing. It's the the cross-pollination. And we have an event on it um, about, like, pandemics. We're calling it pangolins and pandemics and about, like, China's wildlife trade. And that has surely caused a lot of the issue and, and potentially the outbreak in, in particular. But you can't blame the entire Chinese people for that, right? You should blame the government for not placing the controls on it. And that's where it cycles back to with a lot of the, the problems or what I care, like what I identify as the points that need to be improved in the Western mindset and specifically, especially in the U S mindset, there has to be a complete mm-hmm. distinction and differentiation between regarding China as the Chinese people versus the communist party. Because in my mind, they're completely separate as far as like the thought process or overarching, you know, interest drivers between the two. And it's like, it's like if folks in America, a lot of folks who don't support Trump, but it's like internationally, if someone were to just like categorize all of America under the government, it's like, <laughs> you would feel misrepresented too. And yet a lot of we times, feel away. Folks are the, yeah, exactly. But a lot of times those folks are, yep. are the ones who are still doing the same thing. So we, we all fall into some of these traps, but at the same time, you have to be conscious of trying to, trying to work past them. Totally. But I think the totally. beautiful thing is like, we realize that people are falling into these traps, you know? And I think that these conversations are important, especially with yeah. a company like SubChina is doing, especially if you guys aren't funded from any like outside resources and keeping it privately funded so you can present the most middle ground news or unbiased as possible. That's amazing. I think that's, that's really the only way. Yeah to keep shit flowing just like unfiltered news and realizing and checking biases and i think as i yeah 
I think you were going to come back full circle again and say probably this is a good time for introductions. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was. I figured, you know, we're talking about your company. We should also talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> so what's up, y'all? Welcome back to yeah. the Communal Podcast. We got Azim on the line, Eric as always. And who have we been speaking with? Yo, you've been speaking with uh, Alex Uris, um, based here in New York as well. Um, grew up in Syracuse and, and moved to the city after I came back from China in, like, what, 2016? Welcome, welcome, welcome. You want a more in-depth? I can do a more in-depth uh, introduction. <laughs> I feel like I've been, I've been quite verbose in a lot of my, uh, <laughs> my talk already. So. No, 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 you're fine. I mean, introduce yourself the how you'd want to introduce yourself. You know what I mean? Like, what, what would you want the people to hear about you? I mean, that's pretty much it. It's like, yeah, Alex, live in New York. Um, I do China stuff. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's great to be <laughs> on here. Beautiful. Thanks for having me, guys. No, of course, of course. And I'm pretty sure, like, even living in New York now, after spending all the time traveling, the restaurant life must be amazing for you because you, you can actually speak the language and know that cer- those certain restaurant etiquettes whenever you do go down to Chinatown or visit some of these Chinese restaurants. How, how has that experience been? Are you just ordering in it's Chinese? Or? Yeah, I do. I do order in Chinese. I have like a, there's one spot in Brooklyn that I order from. It's called Authentic Sichuan Tofu. Um, it's like on Fifth Ave. I love that spot. Every time I call them, they know who I am. Yeah, shout outs. Uh, Every time I call them, they know who I am. I always order in Chinese. And like, you know, the the delivery driver comes and I say hi to him. And he's always, always taken aback. You know, it's fun. Like the, I try, I I think I've been like trying since I got back from living in China to like move away from doing like the the white boy speaks Chinese bit, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. um, like not that there's anything wrong with it, but like, I also, I know what you mean. there's a part of me. Yeah. You know, like I think, I think that's, it's kind of run its course. Like, dude, you should look on YouTube. There's this guy, Xiaoma who really has fully leaned into it and there's a market for it. The guy got 14 million views on a, on a video titled like white guy surprises, uh, local Chinese diners at a Chinese restaurant in New York or something like that. And like, you know, there's a market for it, but I've been trying to, uh, definitely, Swing away from the dog and pony show to some degree. No, of course. I feel like you're 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 building those bridges authentically, though. You know, I don't feel like you're you're, totally. you're not you're not doing it just for show. No, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think there's like it's it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the challenge too between you know bridging gaps or like avoiding misunderstandings, right? Is that a lot of times the people the first few people who try to do that are like kind of dismissed. Like it's easy to just be like, oh, it's the white boy speaking Chinese. It's like no, like or yeah. oh, you're pandering. <laughs> you can still. Yeah, or pandering or something like that. Whereas it's like, no, like, I mean, certainly uh, as you've been talking, it's clear that, you know, you very naturally like fell in love with the language and the culture and that sort of led you to where you are. And I'm sure a lot of people are kind of falling that same, that same boat. So yeah, I'm sure it's an interesting thing to, to navigate, at least in those initial years, as you start to like really, you know, understand your own relationship with the culture as a quote unquote outsider, though, obviously one who is still engaged with it and spent a lot of time with it, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And I, I think I, um, you know, I work with a lot of students across the U.S. through my work. Um, I have like a student ambassador program that I run. And I think we really try to hammer down and work with them to, you know, increase their understanding from from all angles um, and like to, to take a holistic perspective outside of the language, but also like with the politics and culture and everything to just, you know, make that an all encompassing experience and to really delve their, themselves into learning Chinese um, from, you know, repeat again, but the holistic perspective. Do you have any um, plans to move or live back out there or are you going to post up in the States for the time being? 
Good question. Um, so I know once I, you have the no, travel bug, it's hard to stay put. I love traveling. And so like for leisure, travel a lot. We went to Indonesia in August last year. Um, that was super cool. I got scuba dive or I'm uh, scuba certified as of like February last year. So I'm trying to just go and scuba dive everywhere I possibly can, especially as the oceans are degrading. Um, sadly, <laughs> but know, like, right? yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I would do, I don't think I would do like a year straight in China. I would be okay with splitting some time doing like a few months at a time in China and then coming back and like having a base of operations in the States um, that's what I would see as like an ideal kind of situation. I don't know though. I don't want to like, I don't want to box myself in if the opportunity presents itself, you know, for the right thing, then I guess I would, I would have to take a look. I couldn't close it out. That's real. Shit, I'm still Wait, not to... stuck on the scuba diving. <laughs> My bad. Yeah. I was, about to say, I, was, I was about to say like, not to take a complete left. Like, you say you got certified in scuba diving. Right? <laughs> yeah, dude. I... That's a serious, I feel like that's a serious qualifier in, in one's relationship. He just with dropped that diving. in. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally cool to divert out of that. Um, I have always wanted to scuba dive. Uh, my brother and I, like growing up, my brother wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And then he realized like he didn't really want to go into the military, but like always loved swimming, marine biology. And like we both really loved snorkeling. Um, very fortunate that like my family would take us to Hawaii um, and we would like get to spend some time out there. And I was snorkeling when I was like six years old in the open ocean off of a catamaran and have always just like loved the open ocean. Um, and our parents never let us get our scuba license. They just like thought it was too dangerous. They didn't want to put the the investment into it. They thought if we did it, then like you have to use it and you need to like be traveling all the time. And eventually like my brother and I are now adults and we went out to Hawaii with our parents for like a nice family vacation. And we were just like in the hotel room thinking, damn, like what if we get scuba certified? We should probably make this happen. So we what? like pounded through a class. Yeah. <laughs> we pounded through a like a class. We got a textbook from this dive shop in Oahu because we were going to Kauai the next day. We found a dive shop mm-hmm. in Kauai that would let us do our introductory like school book classes with this dive shop in Oahu and then transfer it over. So we did like a full day of like tests and classes in, in Oahu, went over to Kauai and did our like open water dives, got certified, um, which like I don't necessarily suggest doing everything in a super condensed time frame, but it all worked out well. My brother and I are very serious with like protocol and precaution. Our dad's a pilot, like not, not commercially, but just a private, like hobbyist pilot. Um, he used to be an air traffic controller, but like he's always drilled in our head. The idea of like when you take a risky activity where you could potentially die, it's just about having your checklist and mitigating risk. So like, just don't do anything stupid and outside of what you have trained or like thought about training for. And like scuba diving, that's pretty much like, don't go too deep. Don't stay longer than you need to, you know, like continue to breathe. Don't hold your breath. And yeah, it's been super fun. So I, we scuba dived in Hawaii. And then when I went to Indonesia, um, I slipped out for a day and, and just did it like a three dive, um, with a, a dive shop out there. Wow. Sure. Wait, what's part, so what's part of this checklist again? Cause I, you do have to mitigate risk no matter, even if you do, even if you do start feeling comfortable in your craft, you know, at all times it's good to start checking yep. yourself to make sure you're going back to basics with every introduction. Yeah. So there's, there's like a mnemonic device that you'll use. And, and I, um, we use it as like Bruce Willis ruins all films. 
So you're going to check your BCD <laughs> is inflated. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I don't necessarily believe in it. I just like, it's a very good you just, just something you use. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you do like, you check your BCD is inflated. That's your like inflatable vest. You want to check if you have your weights and your weight belt with the quick release. Ruins is rear releases. So you want to make sure that all your straps are clipped and that you can release your weight belt. Um, air is a, so you want to make sure that like you have air on in your tank and your gauge is reading properly. And then F is final checks. So just like anything else you need to make sure is okay. Your mask strap, anything of that nature. And then like, you know, the, the risk mitigation and like checklists, there's certain procedures, like if you run out of air, what do you do? And you need to assess if like, well, am I below 30 meters or am I above? Um, do I need a decompression time? Can I get up and like potentially harm myself, but stay alive? And like knowing how to, to kind of navigate that, which is all stuff that you just drill through in the coursework and like in some of the open water dives. But I'm excited to do some more training on it and like do an advanced open water. I want to get nitrox certified so you can get longer dive times and just like all together trying to get more into the, the world. There's a lot of diving to be done. A lot of ocean.